0: I fully intend to finish Ezekiel tonight. A lot of it is land division and so forth. In that case, a picture is worth a thousand words. So there's a thousand words we don't need to read. We finished 45 last time. And this is all in the context of the millennial temple and the millennial division of the land. And one of the things that God was talking about through the prophet was civil government He's going to continue talking about that tonight, and as I said last time, and I'll reinforce, one of the reasons that Israel fell into apostasy and got exiled was because their elites led them there. The priests quit doing what they were supposed to be doing, which is clean and unclean, holy and common, and teaching Torah. They started sort of rolling their own. And the book of Malachi talks about the priests' descent into everything is routine. Yeah, 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 yada, 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 another goat, you know. And they quit being zealous for the law and they started offering what God calls polluted animals, which is to say animals that were defective in some way. So they went south, and then the nobility also went south. I suspect the sequence was the priests went first, the nobility then followed them, and what the nobility started doing is using their position in government as a way to enrich themselves, sort of like what's going on today. It's a perennial problem. People get into government and very often start off with very high ideals, and very often, in fact, one of the things that convinces me that the United States was set up by God is George Washington. George Washington was a very high-powered individual. In fact, he was probably the shepherd of writing the Constitution, in addition to being the military commander that prevailed against the British. But one of the things, as you all probably know from your history, he was offered the position of king. And he said, no, I'll serve two terms as president, and then I'm going to go back to my farm. I'm done. So in the annals of people in power, that is really unusual. We're going to continue in that vein here in 46. Let's test the Lord God. The gate of the inner court that faces east shall be shut on the six working days, but on the Sabbath day it shall be opened, and on that day of the new moon it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by the vestibule of the gate from outside, and shall take his stand by the post of the gate. The priest shall offer his burnt offerings and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening." One thing that is going on, and we'll see more about this as we go along, one of the things that is commanded, if you will, in this millennial temple is that the prince himself has got to show up every Shabbat. Every Shabbat, this gate's going to be open. We expect to see you there. You'll go ahead and bring your sacrifice and so forth. But as opposed to previously where people would show up on special occasions, and people would maybe not show up at all. This is commanded, and I'm suggesting that one of the reasons for all of these regulations is to help prevent the nobility from going south again. God has drawn them in and said, you be here every Shabbat and offer a sacrifice. Verse 3, The people of the land shall bow down at the entrance of that gate before the Lord on the Sabbaths and on the new moons. The burnt offering that the prince offers to the Lord on the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. And grain offering with the ram shall be an ephah, and the grain offering with the lamb shall be as much as he is able, together with a hint of oil for each ephah. This prince bringing as much grain as he is able, That doesn't make any sense to me. However, the Tanakh translation does make sense to me. What the Tanakh says is he shall bring as much grain as he wishes. There's no prescribed amount here. So you can bring as much as you like. The translation as much as he is able sort of seems like, well, if it's been a bad week and the tax collections haven't been very good, then maybe not much grain. And if it's been bountiful, maybe a lot. The Tanakh translation is more, how much have I blessed you? Show up with an appropriate amount of grain as much as you want. I very much like that translation better. I have no idea whether it's right or not, but I like it. This one I don't care for because it doesn't make any sense to me. Verse 6, on the day of the new moon, he shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and six lambs and a ram which shall be without blemish. As a grain offering, he shall provide an ephah with the bull and an ephah with the ram and with the lambs as much as he is able. Again, as much as he wants. Together with a hint of oil to each ephah. When the prince enters, he shall enter by the vestibule of the gate and he shall go out by the same way. When the people of the land come before the Lord at the appointed feast, he who enters by the north gate to worship shall go out by the south gate. And he who enters by the south gate shall go out by the north gate. No one shall return by way of the gate by which he entered, but each shall go out straight ahead. When they enter, the prince shall enter with them, and when they go out, he shall go out. So the idea here is, obviously, this is corporate worship. I have no idea why you have this crisscross parade. One of the commentaries I have said, well, God is a God of order, and he doesn't want people milling around in there. So start from the north, walk straight through, leave by the south. Start from the south, walk straight through, by the north. Do with that whatever you want. I have no idea what the idea is there. Verse 13: You shall provide a lamb a year old without blemish for a burnt offering to the Lord daily. Morning by morning you shall provide it, and you shall provide a grain offering with it, morning by morning, one-sixth of an epaw and one-third of a hint of oil to moisten the flour as a grain offering to the Lord. This is a perpetual statute. Thus the lamb and the meal offering and the oil shall be provided morning by morning for a regular burnt offering. And then thus says the Lord God, if the prince makes a gift to any of his sons, okay, here we go again, this is civil government, and by the way, there's a map behind me, they're all over the internet, and what you see on that map is Israel in the future goes clear up to the river Euphrates that's where Dan is, clear on the north by the river Euphrates, and then all the way down to the brook of Egypt. It's divided up in pie slices or, you know, horizontal slices, if you will. And at the place where Jerusalem is now is where the millennial Jerusalem will also be. And on this particular map, the holy district is that blue lozenge in the middle. And that's something like 25,000 cubits on a side, which is, I believe, 8 point something miles. Horizontally, both sides of that blue lozenge belongs to the prince. And one of the things that it said last time is, this is yours, bucko. Don't go stealing land from anybody else like your predecessors did. So what we're going to have here in just a minute now is the idea that the prince is going to have children, and he's going to want to give them an inheritance. And he is limited in the inheritance that he can give his children to that horizontal band between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Now let's go ahead and read it. I'm in 46.16. Thus says the Lord God, If the prince makes a gift to any of his sons as his inheritance, It shall belong to his sons. It is their property by inheritance. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, and I'm assuming the antecedent of the pronoun his is still the prince. So verse 17 again. But if he makes a gift out of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his to the year of jubilee, or year of liberty. Then it shall revert to the prince. Surely it is his inheritance It shall belong to his sons. You all are familiar with the law of Shmeta and Yovel. Every seven years, slaves are turned loose and debts are canceled. And then every 50 years, everybody goes back to his ancestral inheritance. The land gets its people back. So what this is saying here is the prince, out of his own inheritance, he can make a gift to a servant. But that gift only lasts till Yovel, and then it reverts to the prince's family. And what that winds up doing is disempowering the bureaucracy. You all remember Joseph when he sold grain to Egypt. First off, he sucked up all the money, then he sucked up all the livestock, then he sucked up all the land, and finally he made everybody serfs. The only people who were exempt from that were the priests which are Pharaoh's governing class, the bureaucrats. So they didn't participate in any of this. They had their own stipend of food. They kept their own land. They were not sold as serfs. Government does that. It's entirely human. I'm not anti-government. I'm not an anarchist. Neither is God. But God is very clear-eyed about human tendencies and how we behave. And having been in government myself, I behaved the same way. So I'm not sitting here being holier than thou, because I did some scummy stuff when I had the ability to do so. It's very human. So what he's setting up here is you can't have a permanent bureaucracy that is going to then wind up sucking up all of the prince's inheritance. Verse 18, The prince shall not take any of the inheritance of the people, thrusting them out of their property. He shall give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people shall be scattered from his property. And that's what I was just saying. 19. Then he brought me through the entrance, which was at the side of the gate, to the north row of the holy chambers for the priests. And Behold, there was there at the extreme western end of them, and he said to me, This is the place where the priests shall boil the guilt offerings and the sin offerings, and where they shall bake the grain offering, in order not to bring them out into the outer court, and so communicate holiness to the people. Sin offerings, guilt offerings, form part of the food of the priests. They would take them in, they would scatter the blood on the altar, they would wave portions and so forth, and then that would be their food part of their compensation. So the food that gets eaten by the priest stays in the holy place. It doesn't go out. And then what we'll see in a minute is outside of there, there's another set of kitchens where people's peace offerings and thank offerings get cooked. Because peace offerings and thank offerings are essentially a barbecue in the presence of God. You bring all your friends in and kill a sheep or a bull or whatever, depending on how many friends you have, it gets cooked there, and you then get to eat of it. The priest gets a specific portion, usually a a shoulder or a cheek or something, and, and then you and your friends get to eat the rest of it. This inner set of kitchens is for the stuff that is holy, that is, the food for the priests. So chapter 47. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. Behold, the water was trickling out the south gate. Going on eastward, with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits, And 1,000 cubits is 750 yards, for those of you who are into gunnery. And he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. So 1,000 cubits out, it's now ankle deep. And again, he measured 1,000 cubits and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Then he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? This is what I was talking about on Shabbat, for those of you who are paying attention. Water flowing from the temple. And it shows up several places in Scripture. It shows up in Zechariah. It shows up here in Ezekiel. It will show up in Revelation, but different. Let me finish this, and then we'll come back and talk about that. So verse six again, and he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river, very many green trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, the Arabah is the dead sea, and enters the sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. One of the things about the Zechariah version of this is it goes both ways. I believe it goes both to the Mediterranean and to the Dead Sea. This version just goes to the Dead Sea. So Zechariah 14, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. So the water flowing out, according to Zechariah, goes both ways. According to Ezekiel, it only goes to the east. Verse 9, and wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. There will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from Engedi to En Egliam. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. The great sea is the Mediterranean. Verse 11. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. And on the banks, both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Remember, this is still not the new heaven and the new earth. So we're going to get a similar vision, if you will, in Revelation. Instead of simply trees with ever-bearing fruit, the trees that are going to grow beside the river in Revelation are the tree of life. This doesn't specify that it's the tree of life, and I suspect it's not, because this is the millennium now, not the new heaven and the new earth, whereas Revelation is when everything is recreated and back to perfection, and you have the way to the tree of life reopened. So now, starting in chapter 47, verse 13, we have a list of tribal boundaries. I'm not going to read all of those. Uh, You can see them on the uh, slide in back of me. And for those out in streaming land or for those out in podcast land, they're all over the internet. Just look up Ezekiel 48 boundaries and you'll have your choice of pictures. So now, all the way down to chapter 48. These are the names of the tribes, beginning at the northern extreme, besides the way of Hethlon, to Hama, as far as Hazar-Inam, that is, the northern border of Damascus over against Hamath, and extending from the east side to the west. Dan, one portion, adjoining the property of Dan from the east side to the west. Asher, one portion, adjoining territory of Asher from the east to the west. Naphtali adjoining the territory of Mithali, Manasseh, adjoining the territory of Manasseh, Ephraim. So Ephraim and Manasseh are together. Remember, they're both Joseph. And adjoining the territory of Ephraim from the east side, Reuben one portion, and the territory of Reuben from the east side of the west, Judah one portion. And the territory of Judah then joins the prince's section. So Judah is the southernmost tribe north of the prince's portion. And then you have the holy portion. And again, we have been through this several times, 25,000 cubits on a side. And then off to either side, the portion of the prince. So you have here, if you will, the Levites have the northern 40%. And then in the middle, you have the holy area where the temple is and so forth. And then in the south, you have the city and the land on either side belongs to the prince. So you have this description of the center section and then down to verse 23. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin. Benjamin is the first tribe below what we'll call the federal district. And adjoining the territory of Benjamin is Simeon, and adjoining the territory of Simeon is Issachar, and the territory of Issachar is Zebulun, and then Gad at the bottom. So that's the allocation, if you will, in the millennium. One of the things I will remind you of is when God talks to Abraham, Clear back in Genesis 15, and he's promising the land. One of the things that you'll notice is the promise extends from the river all the way down to Egypt. The river in that case is the Euphrates. Israel has never controlled all of that. David sort of did, because David had all of that region under military control but I don't know that the Israelites ever settled it. In other words, they sort of stopped their settlement activity up around Lachish, which is the Lake Hula in southern Lebanon today. So David did, in fact, control the area up north of Damascus all the way to the river, as probably did Solomon, but they never really owned the land because when Joshua divided the land, that stuff up there had not been conquered. So it was not divided by Joshua, so it wasn't part of any tribal inheritance. So the thing that's happening here in Ezekiel, in the millennium, as God regathers Israel, brings them all back into the land, the territory that is described here in Ezekiel 48 is the original land grant as promised to Abraham. God didn't specify when he promised it to Abraham how it was going to be broken up. In fact, at that point, the 12 tribes didn't exist. All he said was, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land from here to here, and it'll be for your descendants forever. I don't know whether God envisioned 12 tribes or not. One of the things about God is he can certainly make it happen. Comment was, it's curious that the land east of the Jordan, where the two and a half tribes were, Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad. And the reason Manasseh was only half a tribe is because they wanted Manasseh going across to keep people linked up. But anyway, that land east of the Jordan, which belonged to the two and a half tribes, is not part of this millennial allotment. Those two and a half tribes are moved over into the original allotment that was promised to Abraham. The area down south, Gad, Zebulun, Issachar, and Simeon, that's the Negev. So this millennial land that you see in the map here is in fact the chunk of land that was promised to Abraham. So verse 30. These shall be the exits of the city. On the north side, which is to be 45 hundred cubits by measure, three gates, the gates of Reuben, the gates of Judah, and the gates of Levi, the gates of the city being named after the tribes of Israel. On the east side, which is 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Joseph, the gate of Benjamin, and the gate of Dan. On the south side, which is to be 4,500 cubits by measure, three gates, the gate of Simeon, the gate of Issachar, and the gate of Zebulun. On the west side, which is to be 4,500 cubits, three gates, the gate of Gad, the gate of Asher, and the gate of Naphtali. The circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. This is not the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is an order of magnitude bigger. So this is millennial stuff, not new heaven and new earth stuff. The comment was that the idea of the prince giving his son's land by inheritance indicates that people are being born. It also perhaps indicates that people are dying. As in, you don't get your inheritance until your father is dead. Unless you're the prodigal son. It's described as a gift. The prince can give a gift to his sons. And once he does, that gift is theirs forever whereas a gift given to a bureaucrat reverts at Jubilee. The short answer is there will still be death because at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and he will move the nations to attack Israel. And there will be a great big battle. And so, yes, there is still death at this point don't know if the prince dies. I just don't know what the lifespan is, because if you take the prince uh, as being David having been raised from the dead, my question is, does he then have a resurrection body, in which case he would be immortal, I believe? or is he raised from the dead the same way Lazarus was raised from the dead? And you know unless Lazarus has been hiding out for the last two thousand years, We assume that Lazarus then went on and had a natural death. But scripture doesn't say that, so as I say, he may be living in Argentina somewhere for all we know.